the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. The Oxford English Dictionary is the accepted authority on the English language, containing 600,000 words. Reading from cover to cover, without a break, at the rate I speak on this program, would take roughly two and a half days. Believe me, I will not be doing that. But it is thorough, reflecting both the evolution of our language over 1,000 years and also the words that have entered common usage. One such addition in 2016, the compound word post-truth. In fact, it was selected as the Word of the Year. Now, in this episode of Challenge 2.0, we examine changes in the concept of truth, their implications, and what deeper trends these changes might reflect. So we'd like to welcome three wonderful guests who have all been gracious enough to join us in the past and joining us again, Imam Jamal Rahman, Pastor Dave Brown, and Rabbi Ted Falcon, all of the Pacific Northwest Interfaith Amigos. Before we dig into this topic, uh, you've been here before, but perhaps one of you could just briefly elaborate on what the Pacific Northwest Interfaith Amigos is and what you do. The Interfaith Amigos originally began right after the horrors of 9-11. And Jamal and I started working together that week. That's right. And never stopped. <laughs> We're creatures. My hair was black at that time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had hair. Yeah. Um, and about halfway through that year, uh, we enrolled Pastor Don McKenzie. And the three of us have been working together, supporting, deepening interfaith dialogue uh, for now almost 18 years. When Pastor Don moved to Minneapolis in his retirement from other activities, we enlisted Pastor Dave Brown uh, to do programs with us in the Pacific Northwest. The last five years, it's been quite a remarkable journey as we've developed our relationship and invited people to look at their core beliefs and how their core beliefs interact with other people's core beliefs. And it's been really a terrific experience. And sharing wisdom on that, the topic that we want to address today, we know that post-truth has been accepted as a word in the Oxford English Dictionary. It led me to reflect on what response I would have received from a teacher, from a parent, if I'd used the word post-truth or alt-fact. I might ask each of you that question. What response would you have received when you were younger and if you'd used that phrase? In my world, my, my father really defined reality. And um, in, in the sense of how he knew things, you know, he was the authority and he took it on then the authority of his experience. And that was how the world was put together. That's how we were taught to embrace the world. And so if I came home with other glimmers, especially in the 60s and the teenage years, those those would not be true. And, and it could be as trivial as what kind of food we, we should be eating, or it could be quite as profound as when I started to be exposed to other faith traditions and to other races 
and I started to challenge some of the norms in my household mm -hmm. uh, that would, you know, that my father would have seen that as not true, and that would, it would have been false truth because there was only one truth, which was his reality. You know, um, I and my siblings have been very blessed with loving and wise parents. So I heard lovely, um, beautiful phrases like, you know, don't be so attached to your beliefs. And from them, I learned this insight, which I always repeat, blessed are the flexible, mm -hmm. for they will never be bent out of shape. Additionally, I also learned from my parents about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that no matter what the experts say, uh, others' authorities say, always consult your heart. And uh, maybe one last one that I've learned from them is, there is truth, and there is truth of convenience. And that's something very critical for me. Mm -hmm. What for you is sort of an iconic example of post-truth or alt-fact? I'm going to do a real unpopular one. What comes to my mind with alt-truth is the Bible. Because uh, an incredibly spiritual text, you know, whether it's the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, the Quran, is too often read as a literal document, you know, a literal history, literal. God said these words. God spoke in... Hebrew, God, no, God spoke in English, no, God spoke in Greek, no, God spoke in Arabic. So I think taking the Bible literally has caused incredible distress and suffering mm -hmm. in our world. And so I would point to a literal interpretation of scriptural sacred text as uh, all truth. And I would, I would build on that where I see the rise, the rise of authoritarianism, um, both in the religious realm where a teacher says this is the truth and we can't challenge that, or as Brother Ted said, the Bible as the inerrant word of God in the Christian household. And, and, and I think the rise of authoritarianism in an insecure age teaches people not to trust their own experience. Mm -hmm. And in a spiritual sense, <clears throat> which I was taught growing up, my sense of things, my intuitions, my experiences are not true. I need to go to the external authority. And part of my work as a pastor has been to encourage people to listen to the truth in their own heart and not to assume that their own truth, um, what is true here isn't valid. Um, and to challenge, as uh, Rabbi Ted said, the, the sense that the scripture has to be historically and in inerrantly true. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can give an example uh, that is pervasive among some people that immigrants or the influx of immigrants uh, is a drain on the economy or that they are really contributors to violence in society, no matter what research, what statistics, mm -hmm. what data you show. But this is, I remember in the 1970s, I encountered this in London when I was living there and studying. And I encountered these skinheads who had this very entrenched belief that the economy of Great Britain is declining, the culture is being uh, watered down, polluted, because of the influx of South Asian immigrants. If, enough, if only you beat them up, they'll be scared, they'll go home, and Great Britain will become great again.
It leads mm. to that kind of thinking. I might ask you, we've given examples. If someone said, what's your definition of post-truth, what would you say? You know, something which, uh, uh, no matter what the statistics, what the evidence, I am entrenched in my belief mm -hmm. and in my emotions. So that overrides all the empirical and rational evidence or thinking. For me, that's the definition of post-truth, and uh, it has a lot of consequences. Sometimes when we do a program and we find at the end in the Q&A section there are people who have been waiting to tell us uh, how wrong we are and how right they are, mm -hmm. and we ask them a question. We say, is there anything we could say that would change your mind? Mm -hmm. No, no, really. Is there anything we could say that would change your mind? And that if they're honest, they're going to say no. And we say, okay, imagine it's the same for us. Now let's talk. You know, the weird thing about being a human being is that we tend to see that which supports our beliefs. And we tend not to see that which opposes our beliefs. And to open our beliefs is a challenge. It feels to me, and this relates back to a, one of those life-changing classes I had when I was in college. And it was a core class, and it began with teaching us about epistemology. How do you know what you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it strikes me when we have this conversation of post-truth and truth, where we really need to move is, well, how do, you, how do you know that? What is your epistemology? Is it authoritarianism? Is it empiricism? Is it rationalism, where you're logically thinking it through, or intuitionism? Is it your gut feeling? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe if we get to how we know what we claim to be true, we might have some talking places with each other. And I also think, and this is a value judgment, I think it's healthier if we're able to move into the world using a variety of epistemologies. Mm -hmm rather than just getting stuck under authoritarianism or under you know, my own intuition is what is true. And I think when we employ different ways of knowing, we're perhaps more likely to come to um, a richer understanding of the world and maybe also a richer way of relating to each other. Sometimes I think there's a difference between truth with a small t and truth with a capital T. Truth with a small t has to do with an event or uh, incident, you know, something that is time-specific, place-specific. We could argue, did it happen, did it not happen? We could look at it from this perspective, that perspective. It could be competing narratives, which is to try to get everybody to agree on a small truth is not going to happen. And so there has to be a larger a vessel to hold various small truth T's. Mm -hmm. And on a scientific level, there is no fact because it's all hypothesis. People don't understand this. It's always unfolding. Big T, big T represents the universals. Like we really don't argue about awakening to love. We don't argue about awakening to more compassion and compassionate action. We don't really argue about experiencing ourselves as one common family on one shared planet. Mm -hmm. 
And it makes a big difference when we start focusing on truth with a capital T. Uh, this reminds me of a wonderful insight, uh, a spiritual insight about gratitude. Uh, it is said that if somebody, for example, Jamal, gives you a beautiful, expensive hat to wear, uh, thank the small G, the giver. But don't forget to thank the big G, the one who gave you the head to put the hat on. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I think when we talk about the big T, that would be another area for real dialogue between people and how they understand what is the ultimate truth, what is the truth that undergirds their reality. Reflecting on what each of you have said, it seems evident that this is not a new problem. It's not a 21st century problem. Is the fact that people are adapting this concept of post-truth and using it as an arguing point uh, the cause of the division that we're seeing, the alienation, or does it simply reflect a deeper issue that we haven't dug down to yet? And if so, what is that? You know, uh, there's another insight I'd like to add to what my brothers have said. Uh, there's a verse in the Quran that says that when there is chronic fear, mm -hmm. chronic mm -hmm. anger, helplessness, hopelessness, it's not that the eyes become blind, the hearts become blind. Mm. And when that happens, really, we become irrational and we say and do, shall I say, crazy things. Uh, and, and that's a big, big problem. The other po point I wanted to make is, it is new in the sense that in the 21st century, there are a lot of changes taking place. Let's say in America, mm -hmm. the minorities are going to become the majority. That's a big change. Those who are privileged in um, uh, race, culture, religion, they don't want to give up their power easily. Mm -hmm. And so this change uh, that's happening right in this country, influx of Muslims in Europe, uh, creating a new culture, there's a lot of resistance to change. And I think what we're seeing today is a reflection of that. When I was growing up, there was one newscast, mm -hmm. John Cameron Swayze. And if you wanted to know what was happening in the world, you turned, it was 15 minutes. Now we live in a proliferation of kind of segmented news stories so that we can tune in to that news which tells us what we want to hear and what we already believe. Sometimes as an experiment, I'll sit there and switch between MSNBC and Fox News. And be amazed at the intensity with which each presents their truths mm -hmm. and know that most people are not switching between those or right. among sources. They are dedicated to the sources which confirm their beliefs. So I think the problem has become greater because of the complexities of the world in which we live mm -hmm. and the degree of insecurities with which most of us are living in this world. So we strive to have some kind of foundation of knowing what's going on, of being in the know, of forming communities based on common beliefs. Mm -hmm. I think it's always been that way. We've killed each other over beliefs forever. But I think it's become far more prevalent today. The chasm between us and among us has become exaggerated.
and I, I also b believe there have always been leaders that have concocted a narrative based on their desire to control and not necessarily on any empirical data that they're seeing in the mm -hmm. world. And I think what is different today is just, um, as my brother said, the intensity of our time where one leader could have said 150 years ago, I've had the largest crowd in history. And you would have to, be you would believe him because he was the authority. Now you see evidence that a rash, that De de deny that truth. Actually, Jamal had the biggest. He, he always had the biggest audience. I don't know why people yeah. disagree about that. But 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 you are now, you're you're forced to believe your leader even when the conflicting evidence is right on the screen next to you. Right. Like the inauguration. Right. And and I think you know media is challenging people, and yet people's need to believe and. It overwhelms, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what to do with the need to believe that you're right, even when the evidence, you know, is right there. Mm -hmm. It's like me trying to convince Ted that I am six foot five with a full head of, the, of hair. Wait a minute, you're not? I've, I've done it. See, yeah. that's authoritarianism. Based on that, and we're going to come back to this on possible uh, approaches to that, it used to be that the Federal Communications Commission had certain standards uh, in terms of serving the public interest and necessity and providing alternative uh, views. That does not exist to that point. What would you recommend, just in terms of the communications media, could be done, should be done, to address at least that aspect of the issue? You know, I think something disastrous happened when the independent news section mm -hmm. of broadcast corporations was removed from its independency. You know, it used to be totally separate, and it used to be focused on delivering the news without mm -hmm. any particular commercial interest. It didn't have to make money for the organization. Mm -hmm. And then when it was deregulated, all of a sudden the news section now had the further responsibility of selling product and of gaining uh, listeners and, uh, and uh, enlarging its audience. Mm -hmm. And with that, something what I consider disastrous started happening because news media were pandering. They couldn't help it. They had to pander to the people who would watch them. And so this whole thing started of introducing news, section, news segments by telling you terrible things that we're going to tell you later so you've got to stay tuned and we're going to incite fear and we're going to, you know, and then when you get to it finally, it's nowhere near as disastrous as the promos for it were. You know, but it's into an entertainment mode rather than an information sharing mode. You know, so a lot of us wonder, where is Walter Cronkite? Exactly. I don't know how in this day to regulate, change the regulation of the media. And I would steer in a very different way and it it really is how are, how are we educating our children and young people, and are we um, at the un college level or the university level, or high school level, teaching people how to be critical thinkers? And I used to be a part-time instructor in a liberal arts college, and mm -hmm. and I watched the um, focus from trying to teach liberal arts and how to think critically, how to understand where we are in the sweep of history. 
and and where those started to narrow and the focus became out of fear again we need to make sure that our graduates get good jobs mm -hmm. and we need really to turn our colleges and university into vocational training institutes and so we may be turning out qualified people to work but we're not turning out people who know how to think and know how to think critically and know how to look at an issue this way and i'm going to look at it this way and and I really think we need to get back to educating for citizenship and for a meaningful place in the world, not just see education as a way of ensuring employment. Mm -hmm. And that's take, I know that's a whole different conversation, but it's, I've worked a lot in supporting public education and I really feel some passion that we need to do that. And if we can extend that a little bit further, uh, a root key insight might be we have to do the inner work of really becoming aware of our conditionings, mm -hmm. our prejudices, our stereotyping uh, of the other. There's a wonderful uh, saying by the sages, there is no need, there is no need to seek truth. There is no need to seek truth, only stop, cease cherishing opinions, mm. judgments, stereotyping of the other. So no matter we have few media outlet or, or proliferation of media outlet, if I haven't done the inner work of overcoming my conditionings, prejudices, mm -hmm. I will simply choose those outlets that reflect my biases and validates my prejudices. When people come to you in your faith community, circle of friends, family, whatever, and they say, I am so frustrated by this, what can I do? What do you each tell them? Oh, <laughs> I guess uh, we're all looking at you. <laughs> I, I would say there is hope. There is really hope. You know, there's a wonderful saying in Islamic mysticism. Oh, oh dear heart, never lose hope. Mm -hmm. uh, miracles dwell in the invisible. Even if the whole world turns against you, keep your eyes on the friend. Meaning continue with your spiritual practices of becoming a better human being. Mm -hmm. Then be of service to God's creation. Continue with this and know that change will happen little by little. In my lifetime, I never thought that apartheid would be dismantled. I never imagined the Berlin Wall would come down. I never imagined that there would be an African-American who'd become the president of the US. It has happened. So we just had to keep on trucking. <laughs> that, that might be the first Grateful Dead reference I've heard from, from Brother Jamal in all of our six years. This is exciting. But perhaps not um, the last. <laughs> I counsel myself and, and those that are in my community to be intentional about what you're taking into your life and to monitor how you're spending your time. If you're riveted to MSNBC and the New York Times, all the time and the news is shaping your mood, you've given control of your identity away to things outside of yourself. So I would say, figure out when do you need to take a sabbatical from information overload? When do you need to walk down by, by the river and as Wendell Berry's poem you know, with, with the wild things and, and sit down by the wood duck and let it nurture your soul? Uh, what are the ways, in Mary Oliver's words, that you allow yourself to love the world? I mean, she you know, just passed last month, a great poet, and you know, she says in one of her poems, there's just one question. How do you love the world? If you don't get out into the world, how are you going to answer that question? Mm -hmm. And how are you going to appreciate that world? So I'd say make sure you're intentional about how you're spending your time and, 
and how you're feeding yourself. And if you're not feeding the spirit, you're gonna become more and more despairing. So I think you need to say, I'm gonna go out in the fields or I'm gonna walk down that city street and look at those people and see how they glow as you know Thomas Merton did and he was in mm -hmm. Louisville, Kentucky and just saw that they were all beautiful images of God. Feed your soul, don't just feed your, your negativity. And I would uh, urge people to pay attention to where they are in every moment. Mm -hmm. We have a tendency to want to solve problems for other people out there. We have a tendency to want to think that if the higher echelons of power change, everything will be better. And it sure looks like that's actually not the way things change. It looks like things change with individuals who change mm -hmm. and uh, refuse to to live and express without opening to greater love and greater compassion. Uh, a Catholic teacher, uh, Robert Spitzer, who had been president of Gonzaga University, taught me that there were two faces of the ego. The lower face was called the comparative ego in which we strive to get things and to have things and to be things that give us power or authority or fame and all those things we get are rather fleeting. And the top level of the ego he called the contributive ego. And that's the part of us that looks at the world and says, how can I make things better here? Wherever one is, whenever one is. Mm -hmm. It's like beginning the day with two, with two questions. One is, what am I grateful for today? And the other is, what is here for me to help? What is here for me to serve? What is here for me to make better? Well, in each of your work, individually and collectively, you give us a pathway of that. And I'm very thankful for that and thankful that you've all gathered together and been a part of this program today. Uh, we will have you back and I hope you'll accept that invitation. And I would hope all of you would accept our invitation to join us again next week on the next edition of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.